Bitcoin is the only one that's suitable as money because nobody controls it. And if somebody controls it, then it's political. Welcome to the show that the fact checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the cloud world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jeffrey. Welcome to Bomb Thrower TV. I am Mark Jeftovic, your host, and um, I have with me today Nick Giambruno. Is that the correct pronunciation, or is it Giambruno? Yes, or? that's correct. Okay, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so I first came across Nick. I, I heard him on a podcast. It might have been Adam Taggart's Wealthy on. It might have been a Tom Woods show. I can't remember. It was last summer or so. And it was really interesting listening to your takes on investing in, you know, off the beaten path in, in, you know, international uh, markets. And we'll talk about that in a bit. And what I appreciate about you and Nick and his work is, uh, you know, you worked with Doug Casey for a while, and I think you still do, who's... Mm -hmm. Mr. Goldbug. And I've been following Doug for, you know, my entire adult life and I'm a gold bug too. But what's rare is that you also like Bitcoin. And so do I. So I, I've never been a Bitcoin versus gold guy. I've always been a Bitcoin and gold kind of guy. I think they give mm -hmm. you different kinds of security and different kinds of optionality. So it's great listening to you talk about both and your, your, uh, remarkably informed on Bitcoin. I mean, not remarkably, but it's great. It's refreshingly informed on Bitcoin. You really know your stuff. We reconnected you. after you uh, put out your article on Noster, which is interesting. So why don't, welcome to the show. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and how you wound up being where you are now uh, and uh, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, thank you for the kind words, Mark, and it's uh, it's great to be with you. Um, as you touched on, I've been a longtime uh, friend and uh, colleague of uh, Doug Casey. Um, I first met Doug Casey. Now, Doug goes around, uh, used to go around to all these kind of like small, crazy, off the beaten path countries, and and I, I like to as well. Sorry about that. It looks like I had a little Wi-Fi issues, but I, I'm back now. Okay, so you're you're telling us about. How you like to go to these wild, uh, you know, off the beaten path countries. And for a second, I thought maybe you're in one now, but uh, <laughs> but I think you're in Minnesota, right? Uh, no, I'm actually in Argentina right now. So oh, nice. that uh, that could be the case. But usually the Internet's uh, pretty good here. Um, but uh, yes, I uh, so how I what. How I met Doug Casey. So I'm a you know longtime friend and uh, colleague. I've worked with Doug for over a decade, and I first met Doug in Lebanon, in Beirut, Lebanon. And I used to be uh, I used to work there and live there. I worked in the financial industry there uh, before it blew up. <laughs> and uh, so Doug put out in one of his newsletters that you know asking, oh, I'm going to Beirut, I'm going to Lebanon. Are there any of my readers who would like to get a cup of coffee? Um, so I just replied to the email and said, yeah, hey, I'd love to get to get, to get together. And, and that's how I met Doug. And uh, one thing led to another. And I started uh, working very closely with him. Great. Yeah. And and I mean, you, you uh, from listening to your other appearances, I mean, you have roots in Lebanon now. You're married. Your wife is Lebanese and you stayed there for quite a long period of time. And uh, and you have um, lots of local ties there. 
Uh, yes, yes, uh, I do. Um, I haven't been back for a while, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting place. Um, so I s- spent a lot of time in Lebanon and, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting place from so many perspectives because it's such, it's such a small country. I mean, it's a tiny country when you think mm-hmm. of it, uh, but it's very important geopolitically. Um, it kind of is, as they call it, the weather vane of the Middle East. So you can kind of see which way the winds are blowing because everybody has uh, their faction there. I mean, it's unfortunate for the Lebanese that they use that every, all the regional and global powers use it as kind of like a, a arena that they settle scores and play things out, but, you know, gives you an idea of where the, which way the winds are blowing. And on that note, I mean, I've been covering Lebanon a little bit in, in my newsletter about the, um, the sort of rolling financial crisis that's been going on for years there. Uh, the bank free, you know, the banks are, are, are freezing accounts there. And I don't know, maybe you can tell us how, um, how much of a real thing it is that Lebanese citizens are robbing banks to get their own money out. I mean, I saw a BBC piece about it. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a thing on, you see it on FinTwit and stuff. Is this for real? Is this really happening? It is. And unfortunately, it's very devastating. Uh, But it was totally predictable. You could have seen this coming a mile away. Um, What was the first big clue to me was the local banks started to offer really crazy interest rates to Mm. like sucker people in. So they're offering, I don't remember what it was, but it was far higher than any bank in the West was offering maybe seven, eight higher uh, percent. Uh, so uh, what this is, it reminds me of all these crypto scams, too, where they, you know, mm. you are the yield. And that's essentially <laughs> what it was here, too. Um, so that this is a very basic thing in finance that people overlook. They see a fat yield and they think, oh, terrific. I'm going to make, you know, a consistent. It's 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 just a, another way that the central banks have distorted everybody's view because everybody there's no with all of the central bank intervention, there's not a really uh, reliable place that retirees and people who want yield can get yield. So they get suckered into these things. They see, oh, high interest rate on Lebanese banks. So they all put their money in and then guess what? They get rug pulled a few months later. Same kind of thing. If you don't know where the yield is coming from, if you can't point to productive economic activity that produces that yield, that's sustainable, uh, then you are the yield. And I think that is a lesson. Sadly, people just, uh, they gotta, they gotta learn that lesson and hopefully they do. But that's exactly, that was the first tip off to me when I saw that in Lebanon, I saw how on earth are these banks able to offer that kind of an interest rate? What, what is going on here? And, and what was going on was they were just suckering in uh, money that they could take uh, because they knew money was fleeing the system. It's, it's really a crime if you think of it. That's fraud. And and you know I don't know why they don't they get away with it, uh, but they do because you know all these banks in any country are connected to the government. So uh, yeah, that's what happened in Lebanon. It was a big crime. It's a big crime as far as I'm concerned. It's theft. People's money was stolen, um, and then uh, you know it was locked up, and then all these shenanigans with the currency. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Argentina too. And Argentina has a, a, a wacky uh, financial system. Uh, but uh, Lebanon's is even more off whack because the currency uh, really has, I think it's one of the worst, it's just obviously hyperinflate, hyperinflated by now. Um, I think it went from about 1500 to the dollar of the lira. The lira was pegged at 1500 to the dollar for almost 20, 25 years. Uh, and that all blew up a few years ago, but now it's totally out of control. They have a uh, uh, on the free market, uh, they I think it takes 64,000 liras to the dollar. So that's 1,500 to 64,000. That's a big loss. So Lebanon is a, is has a lot of problems, but um, it's also very instructive. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, it shows us like there's the future. 
um, and a microcosm of it. This, those numbers you gave us, those are after, like they just did a 90% devaluation. Like, was it Sunday night or we're taping this Feb 10? It, it was pretty recent. Yes, but there are two exchange rates. There's the official fake exchange rate that the government declares and says, hey, this is what the exchange rate is. And then there's the free market rate, which is uh, the one I cited, which was 64,000. So what they did is the government devalued the official rates, but nobody's using the official rates. So it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, they did, Yeah, so that was like a 90% devaluation, but the real devaluation is not 1,500 to 15,000. The real devaluation is 1,500 to 64,000. So right. it's even worse than the headlines say. That's so devastating. I mean, um, yeah. There's a couple of different things in there I want to pull on, but one is that I did have in my my list today that I wanted to cover is the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. And I love that mm -hmm. expression, like you are the yield. I mean, it's a you know, if, if you've been sitting at the poker table for 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is, you're it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I remember, I mean, I've been involved in Bitcoin since 2013. I was also um, involved in Ethereum from like 2017 because I, I come from the naming space. That's my main business. I own a domain registrar. And so Ethereum had this Ethereum name service thing going. So I was involved in Ethereum and it sort of got me peripherally in that crypto space. And when people on this last cycle were trying to explain to me all these amazing yields they were getting on things like Olympus Dow and all of this stuff. And I'm like, I don't, like, take me through it again. How is this working? Like, why is this not circular? And mm -hmm. uh, it, I don't know, I just, I had a lawyer friend who, who passed away recently. He used to say bullshit baffles brains, right? I couldn't wrap my head around it. And fortunately, my investor discipline said, if I can't understand it, just don't invest in it because I just Good. like I just really don't get it. So just stick to what I know, which can lead us to the whole Bitcoin stocks thing. But let's talk about the differences between Bitcoin and cryptos, especially now with the SEC cracking down on yield farms and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I think this is the most important question after you've kind of under, you know, gotten into this area and want to understand it. This is the most important question. Um, and, and, and frankly, it took me years to figure this out. But now that I do, I was like, how could I not have seen this uh, earlier? Yeah, me too. Um, so what it, it, yeah. So I, how I look at it is this, I just start from the beginning. How do you look at these things? I look at Bitcoin as money. Um, why do I look at it as money? And I don't look at any of the other ones as money. And I'll tell you why, because it's a very simple reason, because nobody can control Bitcoin. Somebody can control all the other ones. Ethereum changes its monetary policy about as much or more than the Federal Reserve. So uh, yes, they call it ultrasound money right now, but they can change it. That doesn't mean anything, uh, you know. So, so it's 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 really quite ridiculous that these other things. Um, you, you really shouldn't consider. Them. I mean, you could, but they're just not good right? because there's a group of people that can get together. And without getting into too too many technical details, if your cryptocurrency has performed a hard fork, that means somebody is in charge and somebody is able to change the protocol. It's as simple as that. And it, maybe they don't change the supply, but they have that ability. Uh, Bitcoin is different because uh, it, the way it changes is through backward compatible soft forks, which don't change the protocol. Very, very big difference that not a lot of people understand. So to make it wrap it up, Bitcoin is the only one as suitable as money because nobody controls it. And if somebody controls it, then it's political. Then it's not very interesting as money. That's what, you know, it's 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 like, what if somebody could change the supply of gold on a whim? Then it wouldn't be very good money. Uh, Bitcoin is much the same. So 
What are these other things? Uh, are, they, are they equity? No, they're not equity. What is equity? Equity is a legal ownership that gives you a legal claim to an asset or to a company. You are a legal owner of a company. Do any of these cryptos offer you any sort of legal ownership? They don't. They don't offer you any legal. You own Jack Squat. You have no property, real property rights uh, that can be enforced. Um, and if you did, you know what they would be? They would be, certainly be securities. And I don't like government agencies at all. I, I don't. I, I think the I'm not a fan of them. However, I think it's stupid to flaunt them. If you want to flaunt them, well, you're, you know, good luck. Uh, so if these cryptos did offer some kind of legal ownership, they would absolutely, without a question, be securities. And that means you got to register with the SEC. You got to register with whatever jurisdiction you're in. Not, none of them do that. So uh, very, very few do. Okay. So they're not equity. They're not money. Then what are they? They're tokens. I mean, they are tokens. They call themselves tokens. Well, what is the characteristic of a token? A, a physical token. I mean, think of it. W would you invest in a token, a Chuck E. Cheese token? Would you invest in frequent flyer miles? They're, they're issued by a centralized entity. They offer no ownership and they can be inflated at whim. That's a token. So yes, these are digital tokens. So I think if, effectively what you're looking at with crypto is a game of hot potato dressed up in techno babble. That's what I think it is. Uh, and that's not to say you can't make money. You can make money. You can find Doggy Coin, Dogecoin. You can make a ton of money with Dogecoin or Shiba Inu Coin. Uh, effectively, that's what you're doing with these altcoins. Is you're trying to find the next Shiba Inu Coin. Um, doesn't if you can. Good luck to you. You can make a fortune if you can find the next Shiba Inu Coin. But you're not really, uh, you know. Be, changing the world with these uh, these other cryptos. Now, there could be something. I keep my eyes open. I'm not closed-minded. If there is some kind of technology that comes up, I totally could. That Fine, I'll take a look at it. But I'm not inclined to believe it until, uh, to, to believe it until I see it. So um, that's, that's, that's how I would uh, differentiate it. And, and, and this is big. Bitcoin as money, that's not just a side note. This is a, a historical development because we've never had a money like this. So that's how I would see Bitcoin against crypto. But then Bitcoin itself against other monies is a whole nother discussion. Right. And um, I'll just quickly on the crypto side of things. I mean, I've seen projects that I look at and I say, this is a real project. I understand it. And I understand the reason this, this utility token or this usage token exists, or even a governance token in some cases, but setting that aside for now, because you're right, that is a security. But things like Helium and MXC, where they're trying to create these mesh networks and the tokens are what incentivize the miners to do it. I've always been like uh, ideological supporter of those projects. I've, you know, kind of sunk a lot of money into those miners just to sort of test them and stuff. And it's sort of been the reality is like, okay, they're not ready for prime time yet, but I do see, uh, I see a possibility for something like this working, right? And and I applaud the innovation and that people are going. But to your point, I mean, it could be a Chuck E. Cheese token right? That you're running on these things. Like they're not money the way Bitcoin is. The only thing I would, I would sort of mentioned when you said, you know, no one would invest their money in Chuck E. Cheese tokens is just that um, during hyperinflations, people may like in the Zimbabwe hyperinflation, people were like putting their money into prepaid gas cards and phone cards because oh, it, yeah. it was like an emergency. And um, the phrase that came out of the German hyperinflation was not or notgelt, which was emergency money, right? And and my my philosophy around Bitcoin started like around 2000. I, I was in, in since 2013. Around two up until around 2015 or so, I'm thinking 
Bitcoin is a global note guilt. It's an emergency money. Um, this is where people are going because they can see the writing on the wall. Like to your point, they can see all these fiat currencies are going to zero. What's different this time, right, in the world is usually when there's a hyperinflation, it happens in one country or two countries. And you can just, you can shuttle to the country next door and move your money there or something like that. We can't do that today because it's happening to all the fiat currencies, some faster, some slower, but everything is going to zero. So I thought Bitcoin is the global emergency money. But then that has even shifted in the last couple of years that I think this is more than emergency money. This is actually going to be money, like actual like banks. There's going to be central banks that add it to their reserves. There's going to be countries beyond El Salvador and Central African Republic that say we're going to use it as a currency. Like I used to think that was delusional a few years ago. I thought you're you're, you're crazy if you think that Bitcoin is going to become the world reserve currency. I don't think it will become the world reserve currency, but I can see it becoming a component of a world monetary restructuring. I can see that happening along with gold and something else. So, yes, uh, I would I would simplify it by saying Bitcoin is the only one that can replace central banking. None of the other cryptos can, and that's profound. Central banking is a very uh, it's it touches everybody's life, and to have something that could replace it obviate this horrible system that financially enslaves us. This is big. This is a big deal. And I think it can. Um, and just to go back to your point uh, real quick about uh, the tokens, just like we're saying, you know, where does the yield come from? Just a fundamental question. Like, why would you, you, you should understand where the yield comes from? If you're looking at these uh, crypto projects, I would just add another one of those questions is why do you need a token? Explain to me why you need a token. And I would add that to it. Um, you know, oftentimes you don't need a token. Uh, you look at Noster. Noster doesn't need a token. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, and maybe this isn't the best example, but uh, Ross Ulbricht started the Silk Road. There was no Silk Road token. He just did it on Bitcoin. When you introduce a token, you're doing, you're, 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 you're basically adding another layer to your project. Not only are you doing what the project wants to do, but you're becoming a central bank too. You got to be, have monet, you're making a monetary project. You got two projects. So I would just add that in there. But no, I think Bitcoin has, uh, back to Bitcoin and central banks, that is that is of revolutionary significance uh, that it can obviate central banking. And it does, it does the, think about what a central bank does. It, it does the job of central banking better than a central bank in terms of managing monetary policy because there's no humans in it that's apolitical and managing international settlement. This is huge. How do you normally settle value between countries? It's not a it's not as easy as it might seem. It has to go through the central banks uh, of, of each respective country. But now you can have final international settlement of value across anywhere in the world uh, pretty much within minutes. This, this, this is huge. I mean, aside from the monetary aspect of central banks, you know, printing money and monetary policy, they do that settle international trade. And Bitcoin totally replaces that. Yeah, absolutely. And so that to your point about not needing a token, because I mentioned I'm a DNS guy, domain names, DNS. And I actually think I always say domain names were the original NFT, right? Their original non-fungible token. They were all unique. They had this aftermarket value, but they're really all just entries of the same sort of protocol spec. And so looking at these crypto projects as a DNS guy who is pro-free speech, anti-censorship, anti-deplatforming, decentralized namespaces, I think have are the future. They all have tokens until 
when I discovered Noster and started going down that rabbit hole and talking with uh, one of the core devs there. And now he's turned me on to something called Space Chain, which is like he said, Mark, you can do de- you can do decentralized DNS without a token. You don't need the token, you know, the same as Noster. Mm-hmm look at this. And so I am looking at that now. And so that's to your point, especially with, with lightning now sitting on top of Bitcoin. And so you, you have that micro transaction capability for, to, to provide utility and, and that sort of um, function, you really don't need anything else. Yes. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I just want to say I'm on the same page as you. I totally am 100% pro free speech. I want innovations that move this along. I'm just of the opinion. I don't think I don't think crypto is going to do it. I think there's something else that could do it. I'm open minded to see it. I would love to see more advancement in this space. And it's wonderful that we are getting it with things like Noster and and these other developments that you're talking about. Yeah, sorry. I just realized someone, my, my housekeeper fired up her vacuum <laughs> and I realized I didn't have my mic plugged in. So um, no, can you hear me now? I Still can't okay? even hear it. I What's can't that? even hear it. Okay. I can't hear it. All right. Good. Um, central banks and Bitcoin, we have to talk about CBDCs mm-hmm. because what what kills me about all of the CBDC specs um, or specifications and white papers that I read is they all contain the same core components, okay? Expiry dates on money, right? Negative interest rates, and then programmic ability. So these things are going to have social credit baked in. And, uh, and, and I think eventually what happens is they become like, I think... Without going too far down the you know astray, I think we're in this. What the central bank system, the fiat system, is going to try to do is to pivot from fiat to carbon, right? Like mm-hmm. so, we print this money out of thin air. We destroyed the currencies. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants it anymore. So now we're going to turn the the medium of exchange to your carbon quota. And it's all mm-hmm. going to happen through a central bank digital currency. It's going to be metered through your phone. And this is what's going to mm-hmm. control your life. And Bitcoin is the anti-CBDC. Uh, what, but what kills me about all these central bank digital currency projects is you hear, like, they actually think that this is going to be preferable to Bitcoin. Like, you hear them talking about, well, yeah, you're not going to need Bitcoin because we're going to have this centrally bank issued token that we can put an expiry date on. Yeah, it's horrible. It's a, it's a total. Is there anybody pushing this CBDC? They're philosophically and ethically bent people. These are not good people. There's absolutely no redeeming qualities to CBDCs. And they're scary. Like, I mean, that is a scary future that you paint. And I completely agree. It's scary. There is a good thing, though, is that they're completely not practical. They're not going to work, in my opinion. Why aren't they going to work? Because if the fiat system doesn't work, and it doesn't, and it's about to blow up, well, CBDCs are fiat on steroids. Do you think they're going to tone down the money printer when they have a digital CBDC? No. Look at let's look at some examples. The first CBDC was the Venezuelan Petro. How did that help? Did that did that help Venezuela very much? Not really. Would a CBDC have saved Argentina, the Argentine peso? Probably not. 
or Lebanon. No. So fundamentally, these all these fiat currencies are the same. So I don't think it's really going to work. It's not going to get off the ground. And don't forget, we wouldn't even be talking about CBDCs if it weren't for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is what lit the fire under the asses of these central bankers to make CBDCs because they realize they have a, for the first time, a, a, a competitor, a formidable competitor that just seemingly came out of nowhere. And they got to like try to compete with this thing. And it's a pathetic attempt to compete with Bitcoin is these CBDCs. Um, further, we can see Nigeria. Nigeria has resoundingly rejected CBDCs. I think the adoption rate is uh, one out of 200. And that's after the government used a carrot and a stick. They used incentives uh, like discounts. Oh, use your a Nigerian CBDC, you get a discount. That's the carrot. They use the stick. Well, we're going to ban cash and, you know, banks are closed. So they use coercive measures too. Still didn't work. So I, I think... I think to, to sum it up, I don't, I think politicians are not more powerful than economic reality and economic and take might take some time for it to reassert itself and to assert itself, but economic, re, their economic reality is this CBDCs are not viable. And that is going to come out one way or another, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. And so the common refrain, like I hear a lot, you know, um, Bitcoin is the alternative. It's the anti-CBDC. And then the objection I hear frequently is like, well, governments allow it. And I always tell people, you have to invert that. It's This is, we're past, will the governments allow Bitcoin? The question, the true question is, which governments are going to survive Bitcoin? And I honestly believe that. And I know we're coming out of this period of lockdowns and COVID tyranny, where we think that the governments were all powerful. But I actually think the 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 opposite is true that they mismanaged it so badly that they've just spent all their legitimacy and they're actually that was kind of like a peak big government moment in our history and you're right they started they're they're talking about cbdc's they're hitting the drum all the time but i like i follow this every month in my newsletter too and i'm not seeing anything ready to deploy and anything that has deployed has failed Right, the you, you mentioned the Enira in Nigeria, um, even the 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 digital uh, Rimnabi at the Olympics in China was kind of underwhelming. And my joke about Venezuela because they just launched another CBDC last year after the Petro, and they knocked six zeros off their currency. So my joke is every every three years Venezuela launches a new CBDC and knocks six and knocks a bunch of zeros off their currency. And that's the way that, and then the, and then the CBDC fails. What I think is going to happen, because I think the global financial system is unraveling faster than a CBDC can be deployed. I think they're going to go with something that's already out there and try to build on top of that. I think stable coins kind of move closer to the CBDC area, uh, whichever ones survive. Mm -hmm. And I think Ethereum is actually practically all but offered itself up to be the CBDC vehicle. Um, there was a, uh, one of the founders from, I think, Consensus or someone went to went to Davos in, in 2020 or 2019 and said, look, we, we're, we should be the CBDC platform of choice. And I, I think that's the way that's going to go. ERC-20 tokens that are completely you know, modifiable or programmable from the central bank. 
Yeah, I think you're I think you're 100 uh, percent spot on here. I think if uh, they had their way and I think they are running out of time and uh, you can see you can kind of smell their desperation uh, that they would make a CBDC on their own. But if that is the next best thing is to uh, bootstrap onto something that already exists. And well, Ethereum is right there. Uh, the world, you know, look at the World Economic Forum. Look at just look at what they think about Bitcoin and what they think about Ethereum. And that's all you need to know. Uh, so I think you're right that that's what they're going to do. But it, uh, in the end of the day, that's still not going to be practical because it's still just a, a, a junky fiat currency that they're going to print. Yes, it might extend it because what do central banks want to do? They want to get as many people using their central bank tokens, their confetti as possible, because that gives them more economic uh, life force that they can harvest. So yes, if, if um, the US can get, uh, if the US uses Ethereum and stable coins, yeah, people in Turkey and Argentina and in Lebanon, they would prefer a US uh, stable coin to their local shit coin. So yes, they would definitely prefer that, but then that's just gonna extend the life on the dollar a little bit more. It's not gonna fundamentally change the, the underlying picture. Another thing I would mention is that well, that could be a game changer is if China decides to back their CBDC by gold with gold. That could give it legs, and that. But I don't expect it to have much legs because how good of a promise is the uh, CCP's promise to back their CBDC by gold? I wouldn't put much stock into it, but they might try that. That might be something to watch for. Um, but yes, I think fundamentally it's going to be a wild. Uh, this is going to be a wild decade, and I think we're going to see this all play out. Uh, it'll be a battle royale between gold, Bitcoin, and CBDCs. And, it, you know, I say let the best money win. And I, I think I know which one I'm choosing. <laughs> well, let's talk gold for a bit because you're talking China sure. could release a CBDC backed by gold. But, I, you know, to your point, like you can't really hang your hat on anything out of China because again, it's it's like it's like the inner council of a crypto project. They can you can wake up tomorrow morning and they've changed the policy. Like it's just not that policy anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, although they've got enough gold to do it for sure. But I think I don't I don't think any state-run government is going to back a CBDC by gold because it's going to just it's going to put a cap on their inflationary prospects. I mean, I'm also in the camp where I believe. They're going to use this to extend the life in this on the state side of things. They're going to use this to expand, extend the lifespan of the U.S. dollar and its world reserve currency status for as much as possible. And I think maybe they get another decade out of it. If that, I don't know. The other big thing that's been going on the last couple of years is things that I thought would take five and 10 years to play out have tended to happen within 18 months. So it's just there, there seems to be an mm -hmm. acceleration to this. But back to gold. We're seeing central banks buying gold, mainly Eastern central banks and non-Western central banks. I'm from Canada, one of the largest gold producers in the world. We have zero gold in our central bank. We sold it all, the last of it, in I think 2016 or 17 when it was around, I don't know, a thousand <laughs> bucks an ounce, right? <laughs> but, but How about at the bottom? Yeah, it was pretty – what was that? They sold it at the bottom? I said it was about at the bottom. Canada it was, yeah, because I, I had a blog bottom. post that sort of charted it. It's like this, I called it the more the more no moment or the more no mistake because uh, he was the finance minister and it was like, why did you do this? And he, and he just switched it all into US dollars, which is about the peak of the US dollar. It was just the, you know, the most ass backwards trade to, to possibly make. I still like gold in terms of um, just having that solid bedrock of 
you know, foundational money. I don't know what I, what I don't know to do about it is like, how do you safely, like you can safely custody it. How do you move it if you have to move it? Right. And how do you, how do you keep it offshore? I know there's like gold vaulting places like gold money and bullion vault and places like that, but there's also some crypto projects. Have you ever looked at them? I don't mean crypto in the sense we were just talking, but actual like kinesis money and things like that, that are just like their tokenized gold ownership, sort of like gold, uh, e-gold of yore, the days of yore. I don't know if you remember that in the early OOs, mm-hmm. but I don't know. What do you- yes, uh, Tether, Tether, for example, uh, if you're looking at stable coins, Tether has a uh, Tether gold that exists. Yeah. So, um, you know, that that's the problem with gold. And I like gold. I come, you know, I, I come from a background of being a gold lover and i still like gold and why do i like it because it's a free market form of money i like free market forms of money i don't like being forced to use money and money is not complicated people think it's oh you got to know all these charts you have to have a phd in this money is simple and intuitive it's just something to store and exchange value it's all it is it's nothing particularly complicated uh but most people don't know that and they think money comes from the government if you ask the average person where does what is money and where does it come from you get some very strange answers um, so I think this is a huge uh, psychological aberration that the, just the average person, not just in the West, all over the world, they maybe less so in the East, but most people don't know this. This is very, very, very basic stuff on something they use every day. Uh, but gold, um, this is a thing that even a lot of, uh, so I, I, this is how I really understood Bitcoin is because I looked at it through the lens of gold, because um, why is gold a superior form of money? And it comes down to one attribute, in my opinion, and that is that the uh, it's resistant to debasement of its supply. So its supply grows at a very, very slow rate compared to its existing stockpiles. It's a very unique attribute. For example, um, it's not scarcity. This is this is what I refer to as hardness or hard to produce. That is the most important monetary uh, characteristic, not scarcity. And I'll tell you why. Scarcity, for example, platinum and palladium are scarcer than gold, but they're not harder than gold. They're not harder to produce. Why? Because the annual production of platinum and palladium is about equal to existing stockpiles. So it, the market is all out of whack. You don't want to put your life savings into something where the industrial conditions can vary year to year and are just wildly volatile. That is it. So even though platinum, there are fewer ounces of platinum and palladium in this world, they're not better forms of money than gold. That's because gold supply grows at a very, very slow rate. Now, that is a very unique attribute. How did it get that? Because we've only been mining platinum and palladium for a couple hundred years, but we've been mining gold for thousands of years and gold is indestructible. So all that gold that's been mined over thousands of years has built up. That's contributed to a large stockpile, which makes current production relatively insignificant to that overall stockpile. No other commodity has that attribute. And that's what makes gold resistance resistant to inflation and resistant to debasement. That's what makes it good money. And the same thing is true, exact same thing is true of Bitcoin. So that is, and, and um, that, that, that's what, that is the number one monetary attribute in my humble opinion. All the other attributes don't matter uh, if you don't have that attribute. For example, you, um, it, you know, you need, you need, money needs to be durable, divisible, uh, consistent. That's all good. Fungible. That's all good. You need all those characteristics. That's like the bare minimum. But if it's not hard to produce, none of that matters. It doesn't matter if you have, and this is the way I look at privacy coins too. I love privacy. I wish there were more privacy, but are they better forms of money than Bitcoin? I would say no, because that, because yes, they might have better privacy features, although you can get very good privacy with Bitcoin through CoinJoin, Market, Lightning, all these other things, but put that aside, 
they're not hard for the, if there's hard forking and changing the protocol that, you know, I don't really consider that hard to produce because it doesn't have any credibility. So I can get a lot of privacy with the Argentine peso. I can pay in cash in the Argentine peso. It doesn't make it a better form of money. What you need is resistance to inflation. That's what you need. That's the most important form of attribute, monetary attribute. Gold has it and Bitcoin has it. And those are the two best things that have that attribute. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep a I keep a stash of Monero on hand just to have it, and I I'm always and I never touch it unless you know every once in a while I look at it and I'm like, oh, there's been a hard fork, so you have to do this and this and this and this, and I and I feel I just feel perpetually behind the curve with it. That's probably on me because I, I don't really keep keep on top of it, but um, to but to your point, like it doesn't have that cap of like. There's only going to be X amount. You can't, it, it, it can be inflated at will. Bitcoin never can. But the other thing about, um, the other thing about Bitcoin, which we're back on, I guess, versus gold is just, you know, inflation was the number one existential threat up until I would say maybe a year ago, almost to the day, right? Like once the freedom convoy started here in my home country, and um, kind of set off a global revolution, really, I think, finally started the pushback on all this stuff. But once the government weaponized the monet the banking system against its people, then to me, it was like it, it, there's this aspect of Bitcoin that even gold doesn't have, which is that ability for capital flight and for to just to, to avoid capital controls. So, um, I, I, yeah, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry to say. No, no worries. Uh, I, yeah, that, that's hugely important. Um, and, you know, look, the thing is, is that Bitcoin, the privacy is a tricky thing because, you know, it was maybe not done in the best with the best practices of privacy in mind when the Bitcoin was uh, used in the uh, Canadian convoy uh, protests. It, it, it could have been done better uh, because I think they were able to trace a few people and so forth. So yes, Bitcoin, you got to know what you're doing and I think it's going to get better. So that is a thing where there can be improvement. And I think there totally will be improvement because that is something that comes later. It's, 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 Privacy can be built on top of a sound money that can't be manipulated. That's the hard part. If you can get that part down, all the other parts will fall into place. And we're already seeing this. There's a lot of innovations in privacy and Bitcoin that are going to make it much easier and work under the hood uh, that the average person won't even know is there. So I think we will see these. They they're already have the inklings of these things. We'll see that coming into the future. So uh, that that's going to make things like financing the convoy and having unstoppable uncensorable money uh you know even more potent and we'll see these developments uh coming very soon i think well just to drill down on that aspect a bit when i was talking about weaponizing the financial system i was speaking specifically to you know having gofundme and um shut you know seize the funds that had been crowdfunded and give send go like got hacked and then the the spreadsheet outed all the contributors and it was the actual banking system bank accounts uh -huh. that were frozen. I think they almost crashed the banking system. I think that's why they hastily like walked it all back, said, you know, Kissinger's famous line, declare victory and withdraw, right? Like they said, okay, crisis has passed. This is all over. And they actually started unfreezing bank accounts right away because they almost crashed the banking system. But on the Bitcoin side of things, they did come up with a number of addresses 
they posted them to the banking system and said, you know, you've got to, you've got to not do transactions with these addresses, but they didn't seize any Bitcoin. It's not, Mm -mm. they weren't capable of seizing any Bitcoin. And the people who were identified with Bitcoin funding of the convoy were the ones who like self-identified, like I self-identified and said, you know, I, you know, I put on my company, my main business, I said, we're supporting the truckers. And that set off a huge shitstorm in itself that was surprising to me. But um, what I always say about that privacy aspect of Bitcoin or or traceability is like, yeah, people may be able to figure out that you're sending me some Bitcoin or that you've done that, but there's nothing anybody can do about it if we properly custody it. So um, if I use Give, Send, Go to send the truckers 50 bucks, they can tell the Royal Bank to close my bank account. But if I send $50 in Bitcoin to the Give, Send, Go wallet, they may know about it, but they can't say, well, Mark, you know, we're going to shut down your Bitcoin wallet. No, you're not. So there is that aspect about it. There is that differentiation. And um, it was funny. I mean, when that happened, one of my neighbors, one of my normie neighbors kind of rolled by uh, my house in his Tesla and he rolled the window down. He said, Mark, I've got to buy myself some Bitcoin now because, you know, Trudeau became Canada's best Bitcoin salesman for a brief period Mm -hmm. of time there because people realized they can close my bank account because they don't like what I'm saying or thinking or doing. Yeah, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. This is just the beginning, unfortunately. Sadly, I mean, I don't, I don't like these things. It's, but it's just mm-hmm. a reality of the political situation in Canada, the U.S., and the West in general. Is we're going to see a lot, lot, lot more of these things, and there are going to be big advertisements for Bitcoin too, because having, uh, you know. People, it's another misunderstanding that people have about money is they think money in the bank account is their asset. It's not. You, you literally, you, you don't own an asset. You own a IOU from the bank, which is a liability from the bank. It's the bank's money. They can do whatever they want with it. People shouldn't have any assumptions about that. When the second you put your money into the bank, it's the bank's money. It's not your money. You get an IOU and, you know, if they want to give it back to you, they if they feel like it, they will, but it's not your money. Well, what originally got me um, really invested in Bitcoin, like, I mean, ideologically, was in 2013, the Cyprus bailout. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, this is this is unbelievable. But it was happening. And then within weeks, that language showed up in Canada um, mm-hmm. in the budget. And what people don't really understand is the budget language, this is to your point, said, you know, in 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 the unlikely event of a systemic banking crisis, um, certain banking liabilities will be rapidly converted into bank equity. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to tell people, do you realize what certain banking liabilities are? Those are your deposits. Like that's what's mm-hmm. going to get converted into equity mm-hmm. in a zombie bank. And that language has since been uh, renewed in Canada, and then it was made permanent once Trudeau came in. It was originally under Harper, a conservative. Trudeau came in, a liberal, you know, enshrined it. So it doesn't really matter where on the political spectrum the leaders are. This is baked in. It's there's there's language to this effect in Dodd Frank. There's language in Australia. Like every G20 nation has la- has bail-in language baked into their legislation now. And then there's even a supranational. Um, treaty or convention among the G20 nations. So this is part of the plumbing. Bail-ins are part of the system. 
CBDCs are coming, right? And it's all going to be plugged in together. And um, it's like, yeah, guess what? We have to uh, cool the earth by half a degree. So we took everybody's money. Yeah, that you know, this is uh, this is unfortunately what is coming now uh, in a world where this is happening. Uh, yes, the financial consequences are going to be nasty and ugly. But, you know, this is not uh, this is not going to be a happy time. You know, you look at what happens in history when there's hyperinflations and stuff like this. Not good times follow. So, um, look, you know, this is why, yes, Bitcoin is important. But you also one of the things I've written about for many years is international diversification. I mean, yeah, you, you know, you can't change the waves of history. If you're in a place where the, the political winds are blowing in a bad direction, you just got to get out of Dodge. You just you, you're not going to change. Like when you the Bolsheviks took power, you're not going to change that. You just got to leave. You know, yeah. stuff like that can happen in any country. And when we're talking about banking, the bank and the banks and currencies blowing up. I think you have the, you know, it's like baking a cake. You've got the ingredient, you got the egg, you got the flour, you got the sugar, you got all the ingredients there for that kind of stuff to happen. And you got to be careful. This is, we're at a very wild time in history where these things are going to start blowing up. And um, we're just talking about the financial consequences, but there are way more consequences than just that. Well, that brings us to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the international investing, because that's when I first came across you and that sent me down kind of a rabbit hole of my own around like, okay, this is a great idea, but at you know, what level, you know, I'm a value investor at heart. Circle of competence means a lot to me. Um, I can't just go buy shares in a company in Ecuador because I've never been there and I don't understand the place. And so when I came across that podcast and he got me thinking, you know, my wife's from Barbados. We're in the process of getting like citizenship for my daughter and I and get our pas passports. So we've got Perfect. like extra passports. And I thought, okay, so I can do, uh, uh, you know, foreign investing in places I understand. I've been to Barbados a million times. So I started looking at the stock market there, found some interesting, like I founded this one company. It was, it was halted. And I'm like, this is a really special situation. They're halted for some reason. They're like a near monopoly in beer on the island, which is like, <laughs> you know, great. But you know, it, it just the whole thing sent me down a rabbit hole of wondering, like, what, how, like, what do you think? Can someone just buy your newsletter, like financialunderground.com and say, like, this is everything I need to know to then be able to make an investment in some foreign country? Or how important do you think local knowledge and and, and uh, circle of competence is? Sure. I just say, uh, I don't really have many international investments. All investments I recommend are tradable on U.S. Uh, exchanges. Oh, um, interesting. Now, All right. Yeah, so I, I focus mainly on gold, Bitcoin, um, and some other uh, niche areas of the market. But I do, I, I have my eyes wide open on international opportunities. I've it's certainly written about it in the past and invested in it myself in the past. It's just I don't really see anything very compelling. And I um, personally, I mean, I like to see a real blood in the street situation where people have just thrown in the towel where they're uh, you know, it just is at the worst possible situation. And that's, that's when I look for, uh, bargains. Uh, but I don't really, uh, 
I don't really see anything in traditional financial markets that outside of these niche areas that we're talking, gold, Bitcoin, and some a few others, uh, I don't see anything, broadly speaking, uh, that's on my radar right now. Um, thing with Russia and Ukraine is can go on for a long time. Uh, Russian stocks, yeah, they're cheap, but I mean, they're frozen. You bought any Russian stocks in the past year, they're all, I've bought Russian stocks and my holdings are frozen. I can't sell them. I can't buy anymore. Who knows what, what will happen to them? So you have that added element of that. Even if you find a bargain, like Gazprom was insanely cheap. Even if you find something like that, you have political risk where the government can just be like, well, I guess, you know, you can't invest in this anymore and we're going to freeze your, your shares. So you got to, there's a lot of things you got to deal with. Um, actually in Cyprus, uh, Doug Casey and I went to Cyprus in 2013 uh, when this all happened, like a week after this all happened. And we actually found uh, investments there. That's a perfect example of that where the whole banking system blew up. We got on a plane and we found some like uh, well-run productive businesses that got swept up in, in the whole hysteria and they were selling for pennies on the dollar. So that 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 was a good example of something we found and we made some good returns there. Um, but right now, it's just also, generally speaking, the financial markets have been so warped with all this money printing over the years that I don't think we're near any kind of like, I mean, it's not at a point where I see a screaming bargains anywhere. I think the valuation, like even after these recent corrections, the US stock market and most other stock markets, uh, the US one for sure, I mean, it, it is still at valuations of like the height of the 2000, like 2007 valuations before it blew up. That's not cheap. That's mm -hmm. not cheap. I want real blood in the streets opportunities. And I've got a, you know, I admittedly, I have, I have a long-term horizon. So I can wait for a fat pitch to come before I take a swing. Right. Well, before I let you go, let's talk about the one area that we both cover. And I think we have seen blood in the streets in this area, and that's mm -hmm. the Bitcoin stocks. Because mm -hmm. um, in 2007, they didn't even exist. And uh, I started paying attention to them in late 2019 and got, you know, hut and bit farms for like pennies, like they were literal penny stocks. And now, I mean, they really took a hit during the crypto winter. We can debate whether the crypto winter is over or not. But now I'm looking at them and I'm like, I mean, they've come off a lot since December. I mean, they've they've run a lot since December. But before those Dece before that December blast off, I was telling my readers, these companies are at more compelling valuations now, even though they're at higher prices than when we first started covering them back in 2019, early 2020. Do you think there was a blood in the streets kind of situation there? Or, and then the follow on, are they still too correlated to the wider markets to, to really consider unto themselves? Uh, number one, yes, there was a blood in the streets mark uh, incident there. And I think as a general rule of thumb, what I look for is when any company or sector is down 90% or more, uh, that, that's a blood in the streets moment because basically you've wiped anybody who has or is still old, everybody who wants to have sold has basically sold at that point. That Now that doesn't mean it can't go down another 90%. It can go all the way to zero. But I think that's a good starting point. And I think you look at the Bitcoin mining stocks across the board, they were all down 90%. All of them were down 90%. So there you go. That actually is a very good uh, signal that I look for. Um, but why did they go? Why, why, they all gorged. Now, 
not all of them, but most of them gorged on leverage, uh, on cheap debt. And uh, that was a big problem for many of these. Not all of them. There were some there were a few that uh, did not do that, had no debt and did uh, quite well. And I think those ones uh, were, were, were buys. Um, so yes, there was a blood in the streets moment. Um, and, uh, two, what was your second question? Are, are they, do you think that the Bitcoin stocks and the crypto yeah. stocks are still so correlated to the wider equities? They're still like, just, they just trade with the NASDAQ. It's all one trade that it's almost like that overpowers everything on the fundamental side. Uh, that's part. It, yes, that's partially true, but I think they're more correlated to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price, than they are to the yeah, overall true. markets themselves. So I think I think they are more. They, that is true. They are correlated to the the Nasdaq and and you know the broader markets. Totally true. But they're but more even correlated Bitcoin, to Bitcoin correlated to the Nasdaq still. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, but I'm in it. Uh, uh, what I, I I try to do is I try to have small enough position sizes. Like, look, I don't. I know these things are highly volatile. They can go up 10x or more, but then they can go nine down 90 percent or more. I've seen it happen several times. I'm sure you've seen it happen yeah. several times. So, how do you deal with that kind of volatility? Well, you don't want to put enough money where like you're worried or you're you know you're staying up at night because you're seeing how volatile it is so i i think small position sizing is a good way to deal with the volatility that are these are going to continue to be volatile too i i personally am of the opinion that now the volatility is going to be to the upside after we've had a 90 percent uh drawdown and with all these the macro factors that are supportive of bitcoin i think now is a very good time to accumulate these uh these stocks um, but yes, I think you gotta, you have to go in it with the understanding these things can go up 10x, but they can go down 90% too. You, you have to understand that. And so if you can't handle that volatility, have a small enough position size and lower your position size. Take a smaller position size. And, you know, they have a lot of potential. If, if we're right about Bitcoin, they have a ton of potential. So it's not worth putting so much capital in that you're having anxiety over it. So you just, and the volatility is going to be there. You're going to have to just live with it. That's just the nature of a monetary asset that is conquering the world. It's going to be volatile. Of course, it's going to be volatile uh, by its very nature. So you have that's one thing you have to deal with. And um, holding these stocks and riding through these Bitcoin cycles, um, you've been through many Bitcoin cycles. You've been in it since, uh, you know, uh, you went through the 2013, 2017 and 2020 cycle. Um, that's so you've seen this happen many times and it doesn't make it, it doesn't necessarily yeah, maybe makes it a little bit easier, but it's still a wild roller coaster. And mm -hmm. uh, but if you have the underlying conviction in in the in Bitcoin and that it is a superior monetary asset and I and I and I do, um, then, you know, it makes stomaching this volatility a little bit easier. Well, what made it. I had a luxury throughout this entire thing was the way I amassed almost my entire hodl was um, I just became one of the first, I became the first domain registrar to accept Bitcoin as a payment mm -hmm. in 2013. And we just stacked ever since and still do. So that was, I never took a chunk of my money and put it into Bitcoin actually until the winter, this late latest winter was the first time I actually put more of my own capital in but before then it was just all taking it at my business and that that's what i recommend to people if you own a business just start taking bitcoin as a payment method and stack it and that's a dollar cost average right there and mm -hmm. that's and you just forget about it like as long as you don't need it to run you know as long as you don't need that cash to operationally run your business you just forget about it and it just yep. on your balance sheet uh 
I'll ask you, the last thing I'll ask you before I get you to tell people where to find you is I heard you on uh, uh, Silver Bulls or Silver Bullion, um, and you were talking about, that was November, I'm not holding you to this, but you were saying like, you, you give the Fed hiking cycle like six months to a year max, Where did, like in Canada, we just paused, our central bank just said last week, this is the last one. Um, sounds to me like Powell is trying to do this slow motion pivot that he hopes nobody notices, but I think it's happening now. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think he, he's talks a tough game, but come on, he's not going to look at the debt to GDP or I mean, I, I don't like GDP. I think it's a, a faulty measure, but look at the debt level. He can't raise the debt. He can't raise interest rates much more because when they roll over that debt, uh, the federal debt, because it's not all at the same interest rate. And when they have to roll it over, they're going to roll it over at a higher rate. You're looking at an interest uh, expense on the federal debt that is going to approach a trillion dollars and go higher. Um, that is like, the, that's the end game here. So I think what he's going to do, and uh, he doesn't want to cross this line because if he takes rates, uh, put it another way, if the last time inflation was this hot in the U.S., was in the 1980 or late early 1980s, and Volcker had to take interest rates to about 20% to tame it. I mean, he's at what five something, four or five percent. If he had, so he cannot take it to where it needs to go to tame the inflation. So he's gonna he, he's uh, talking a big game, but I don't think at the end of the day he can because the debt level is so high that it's gonna cause that death spiral. If he really gets, if he pushes it, he's gonna look at well now interest expense is consuming more money than we're taking in from taxes, and we're just paying for the interest expense by printing money. Well, that's the end game there, and they're getting very very close to that point. So. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think he can go much more. And I certainly don't think he can go high enough to really counteract the inflationary forces. So they might, they're going to do all sorts of shenanigans. They're going to read, they're going to change how the CPI is calculated. I think they're doing that this month. They already did that. The yeah. They already did it. They're going to, they can do it again. They can do it anytime they want. They're going to change how the CPI is calculated. It's political. Um, they're going to, change their target rate. Maybe they don't want 2% CPI. Maybe they want 4% CPI and say, you know, that's our new, there's a lot of things they can do. Um, so, but I think the bottom line is, is that expect more currency debasement. That's the bottom line. It's one way or another, you're, you're getting currency debasement. I think you can plan your life around that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nick, Nick GM Bruno, thanks for coming on. How do people keep in touch with your work and follow you? Uh, easiest way is go to financialunderground.com. Uh, and uh, I've got a nice uh, special report there that talks about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. You can uh, get that and then you'll be able to follow my work. Great. And you're on Noster and you're on Twitter as well, right? I, yes, I am. You can find me on both, uh, both at Nick Giambruno. Great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yep. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, great to talk to you and hope we can do it again sometime. I'd love to.